Hi, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor? Feeling good. I'm feeling, I'm flowing well, because I just had my kitchen, no, my bathroom sink unblocked, and we all know what that feels like when you're apartment living. How are you feeling? <laughs> that is a good feeling. Um, I feel like I spent kind of way too much time staring off into space trying to come up with something to say this week but right. you know something like i feel like i'm wearing a dunce cap at a birthday party and uh right. so I'll, I'll go with that long-winded answer dunce cap at a birthday party have you seen parasite no not okay yet. well oh, save that... that nugget of knowledge for for uh, for another day okay so this is episode 47 which means that Mark is going first, but I have a little bit... I don't know if I would call this an introductory game, but I would call it an introductory conversation. Um, and this is a conversation that originally occurred to me once we had done... We haven't technically done a full year. We Once we hit 52 episodes, it will have been a full year in terms of podcast weeks but it has been more than a year since we started doing this so we got we had a pretty good average last year of how many um how many episodes we did per week last year yeah so even though this is episode 47 this was something that occurred to me when we hit into 2020 and we kind of did a year in review and basically what i've done and i think that you'll like this kind of thought experiment mark um and I have the data in front of me so that you can just query me and I can probably figure things out pretty quickly. <laughs> but basically, I took the data of Shitty Book Reports, the podcast, and I put it out in front of me like in an Excel, in an Excel sheet of basically just like totaling up and taking like different numbers. Like basically, this is one, a metrics conversation. Two, some of these are like, you know, you inflate the numbers when you do your own, when you calculate your own stats to make yourself feel better. But yeah. also three, like a realistic look at, you know, kind of the podcast so far. And and there's some interesting, there's definitely some interesting things in there. So okay. one fact that I can throw at you is that our average length, our average playtime is 62 minutes. Oh, over an hour. Over That's an hour. That's yeah. interesting. So, um, you know, I did something. You know, this, these weren't down to the second calculations, but I was doing like rounding by like seconds. So like if something was 45 seconds, that's 0.75 of an hour, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, our average length is 62 minutes. Minutes. Our average play per episode, I actually thought it would be lower than this, but our average play per episode is 25 Damn, really? Okay. So we have a little book club going here of about 25 <laughs> people, um, which is, you know, it's, we're not the biggest book podcast in the world, but I don't know. That seems pretty cool that we, we know 25 strangers on average who regularly click play. Yeah, that'll fill a room. Or that'll a, fill a room. A bus or something. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. A small what's bus. A yeah, what's 25 people? That, hmm. Yeah, a 20, that's a mini bus, I think. Yeah. A minibus. Um, the number of books that we've covered is obviously just two times the amount of episodes that we've done. So that's 92 books. Yep. Um, our total no, playtime. We've done a couple where it's been more than one book. Well, what do say. you mean? Have I you think, ever reported uh, on you yourself have done a shitty book report about two at once? 
Yeah, Ambrose Spears, I did too. I did mm. the Civil War stories, and I did uh, Cobwebs from an Empty Skull. Okay. And, fa- so... and the Fables. Uh, yeah, I did two there. I think I did... That might have been it. <laughs> so just throwing it off <laughs> so by one. add one, yeah, 93, yeah, one. maybe. Okay, so be somewhere between 92 and 95 books that we've yeah. discussed on the podcast so far. Now, these are this is like the fun kind of thing where it's like, this is where the numbers are inflated, where it's just like fun to say, but it's like stupid. So the total amount of time of, all, like if you p- played shitty book reports end to end right now, not including this current recording, the total time would be around 48 hours, which makes sense. 46 episodes, an average of 62 minutes per episode. So it's around 48 hours of material. And our total plays of like over all time are 1,161. So I also broke down some of that data into some also like interesting facts because obviously once you start dealing with time versus plays then you can go into total play time correct yeah yeah so but the thing that's weird about total play time is that it just gets like exponential you know like 48 hours times 1,161 plays and by the way that would be if everyone listened to it all the way through every time which is definitely not true um, but total, uh, play time in this, you know, with everything, if everyone had listened to it all the way through every time, yeah, would at be, its ceiling, at, at its ceiling would be 55,728 hours <laughs> <laughs> of us read, like talking about books to people, which is a little bit scary. So then I started to drill down and I said to myself, well, no one listens to the full podcast. I mean, I can't even, even of the podcasts that I love and and tune into, I can't say that I listen to the full thing end to end every time. So I said, what if those were half plays? That's still 27,864 hours. And I started to be more realistic. I said, what if those were only a quarter of the way through? So 13,932 hours. And even if those were only one eighth plays, so e- like the, if the average length time is 62 minutes and if people only listened for three minutes, it would still be 6,966 hours that people have listened to us, which is nearly a year long. <laughs> but if you go into even only playing the podcast one, four, one quarter of the time, 13,932 hours, that's near that's more than a year and nearly two years yeah because i i imagine most people you know they hit play skip mm-hmm. to my part exactly yeah yep, <laughs> right. stop yep. listening mm-hmm. yeah now there are some anomalies in this data that i would like to point <laughs> out as well i actually considered uh uh writing to we host our podcast on soundcloud which is one of the easiest rss feeds to set up for a podcast and um Shout out to SoundCloud. But I also, there is one anomaly. Our most popular episode, which is actually really ironic. Remember Wait, I when think you, I know this one. Yeah. I think it's, it wasn't it like the Baby's Day Out one or something? Correct. So our most, <laughs> our most famous episode was episode 16, Baby's Day Out, which is hilarious because Baby's Day Out is like the most popular film in India. Didn't you say that? Yeah, I believe that was the, the, uh, 
anecdote there. But I should cons- we should consider writing to SoundCloud because Baby's Day Out is actually an anomaly in the data with 135 plays. I actually dug down because you, you can do a thing where you go into the URL data of who listened to you and where from and stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure that was an anomaly where there's like some algorithm in SoundCloud that gets like sent out to a click farm. So like the place oh. that the place that that algorithm came from, like if you follow the URL, it's like one of those things where it's like buy plays on SoundCloud. Like you hmm. can you can like, you know, go to, you know, oh, pay like people Twitter like, followers. And stuff. Yeah. And like a, yeah. like buying plays or buying Twitter followers. So that is one of the anomalies in the data. But there actually is an interesting graph, too, that I can um, that I can show you, Mark. I'm actually just going to text this to you right now. There is a there is a correlation between we actually do get more other than the anomaly of Baby's Day Out. We do get the um, there is a correlation between number of plays and how long the podcast is really okay yes if it's shorter you'll see a dip basically number of plays is increased when length is cut is like some is basically the average length like when it's in the middle somewhere around like an hour when it goes over an hour people are less inclined to click play which probably every social media expert would tell you that okay so we got to keep an eye on that. We got, we definitely got it. Oh yeah, well we're so strict on this podcast. Definitely got to keep an eye on that. <laughs> I think so, we should test that aberration though, and name a future episode like "Baby Stay Out 2 and just see what happens. I'll, I'll, maybe, I'll go oh, with maybe, a reason. No, maybe that should be that. the name of this. <laughs> yeah, Baby Stay Out Two. Baby Stay Out Two: The Return or something like yeah. that. See if we get a spike from a uh, from a indian click farm or something like that or a bangladesh click farm or something like that uh so yeah i mean any other things that you would want to query the data about that was just a quick kind of drill down into what i was thinking it was also really fun to i retype as i went through this i just retyped all of the episode names into my little excel sheet here and it was fun to relive some of the episode names okay i got what is what is the least popular episode we've ever done Ooh, the least popular episode. It's probably a tie. Is, <laughs> yeah, it probably is a tie. There's one. Couple. The one blows. called the one called Blood War only has eleven plays. I think that that's what? yeah. I think that's the least one. I don't even remember what did you cover in the one that we called Blood War. Uh, um, I forget now. That was. I can look it up right now. Oh, a canical, uh, a canical for Leibowitz. For Leibowitz, yeah. It was like it should be called something else. So maybe we should have gone with a boring name. And I went with, oh, Winter by Allie Smith. Yeah, that was the first time I talked about uh, Allie Smith. We're going to re-release that one, just pretend that it's new. Right. (laughs) Winter and a Canticle for Lee Woods. We also talked about Jackie Chan in that one. That was a good one. Yeah. Come on, people. Underrated. Underrated. Maybe it came out around the holiday season or something. Anyway, so... Yeah, just different stats. It's fun to just pull different data. It's fun to think that even if people only listen to one eighth of our podcast, which is only three minutes, that they've listened to our voice continuously for almost a year <laughs> out there in the yeah, universe. Yeah, that is cool. So, is and there it, is there more geographic data? There is, but I like... didn't I didn't pull a bunch of geographic data. Um, okay. But I think that SoundCloud does have that. Yeah, we should look into that because I wonder. 
I'd like to see like some correlation between the uh, origin of the authors that we read and also where the listings where, are coming from. Where yeah, if it, it lines up from. at all. Yeah. That'd be cool. Possibly, but I doubt it. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, finally pulling up this graph that you sent me three minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that interesting? There's like a sharp decline. Once it hits more than average length, with the exception of the anomaly of Baby's Day Out, as you can see on the graph. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So you better watch out for that runtime. Keep things snappy. (laughs) And I think one of my favorite episode titles is episode eight, the Ted Bundy Swingers. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, what was that one about? It was. We were, I don't know. Uh, we were joking about Ted Bundy. That's for sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, just yeah, let me know up. any, if anything comes to mind in future episodes of what data you would want to pull about the podcast. It's just kind of interesting. Really what I wanted to know is, those it, the total play times like across everyone even if they had played a fraction of the podcast it's pretty crazy to think about our voices echoing through people's ears for a total of almost one year of time <laughs> and if you are some sort of a, a, autonomous server somewhere who's just running up <laughs> the plays and we we like that too. That's fine. Yeah, actually, that's true. If they say <laughs> if there's the AI, if their server somehow maybe <laughs> the way that it does it is that it's not just a mechanical manipulation. Maybe it actually does play it that many times, which means that Baby's Day Out episode has played to some anonymous artificial intelligence 135 times, which is yeah. it's kind of sweet. <laughs> if anybody has watched the show Silicon Valley, there's an epi- there's a character named Anton that's just one of the servers. So nice. So yeah. I like that. I, I I'm usually the one jumping into the data. I exactly. I knew uh, I knew that you would want this minor data breakdown. Even though I know if you had your hands on these numbers, that you would come out with some more interesting <laughs> results. We'll do that uh, for episode 100 or. Two year, the two well, year. yeah, I mean, that's the original, the, my original idea for this data thing was like, oh, we, I should do the year like back in data. And then I was like, but it's not a true year. So I hesitated, but now I just went full in. So if you're out there listening to us on repeat for an entire year, we thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, so ready for some book reports. I'm ready for your book report. I don't know if I'm ready for mine. All right. Uh, let me start this. So, I mean, a lot can happen in a day. I think that's mm-hmm. my uh, that's my opening statement. A lot can happen in a day. It's obvious. Correct. Things things can move very quickly, even if you don't leave your home. You know, mm-hmm. especially if you don't live alone. Um, stuff stuff obviously happens outside. People can come and go. Visitors, whatever. Uh, you get you get news. You get mail. You get bored. You get irritated. You can be productive. You can procrastinate. All all the above, and you know the choices you make and the words you use shape the day greatly. And and things can take major turns at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. And you know each day can point out a direct tie to the past, uh, to some point in the past. And sometimes you know it seem might seem like you're always walking on eggshells with the future. And uh, 
most days are not like that. They could be dull, but <laughs> sometimes <laughs> days can have that much impact. So off the top of your head, do you know what was just the most eventful day of your life was like zero to 60. And then it was all day chaos. I'm sure that's been a lot of the days on, you know, movie sets or stuff like that, where it's been chaos, right? Yeah, movie sets or like if you if you host an event where it's your film playing, like I've done, you know, a few indie film premieres where it basically feels like, you know, a lot of people describe like their wedding is like something that you plan for a while, but then it just goes by in the blink of an eye. Like it's yeah. basically just you like shaking up like a thousand hands and then just being like, wow, <laughs> I'm exhausted. Um, so, you know, stuff like that. Um yeah, really eventful thing. I mean, graduating school. When I graduated, my graduation ceremony was in Radio City Music Hall, so that was like overwhelming, but also felt like it happened really quickly. Yeah. Even though during it, that's not true. During it, I was incredibly bored. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's just like you said in your intro. Th even though things are rapidly changing around you, there is the ability to get bored, and then when you look back, you're like, "Whoa, never mind. It was crazy. <laughs> it went really fast." Uh, driving across the country feels that way at first. It feels like a massive task. That's like, "Wow, there's so much ahead of me," and then all of a sudden, you're it's over, and you're like, "Yeah, it didn't seem that long. It, it seemed like really fast and crazy." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Driving so. across the U.S. that is. <laughs> yeah some countries it's not even a full day uh, yeah so anyway you know the book that i brought today takes place in a single day from uh morning to night but mm -hmm. it does a great job of showing you how that day came to be and that's you know what a good author has the power to do is to just throw you into a scenario like you were already there for a long mm -hmm. time absolutely yeah uh, so you may or may not have heard this one. It's actually a play. So I read the paperback version with all the stage directions and everything. Cool. So I read 1956's Long Day's Journey into Night by the American playwright Eugene O'Neill. I want to hear about this just because it's one of those things. I don't think I have not read this, but it's that's just like one of those. Th it's like a title that just comes up, you know? Yeah. And that's why I bought it. You know, I, was, I saw the title, saw the, the spine, and I was like, hey, this is, you know, so I've heard of this somewhere. <laughs> you know? Right. You're supposed and, uh, to know this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It turns out it's very famous, and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people read it in school. I'll get to that later. Uh, we were failed by our public school system <laughs> not reading this. And Once not again, a lot of the things that we've talked about, a lot of the books that we've talked about. Well, to be but, honest, you, know, you and I were not in the honors classes. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we we're, were not uh, trying to achieve uh, peak literature in high school. We're catching up now. Yes, we'll catch up on it. That's our uh, it's one of the goals of the podcast here. So this was written in the early 1940s, but it was first published and made its Broadway debut in 1956. Hmm. And it's about a day in the life of the Tyrone family. They all have problems and their dysfunction, you know, plays out on the, on the page or on, on the stage if you've seen this play. And even though it's a day where a lot of emotion is spent, it feels like it's part of a cycle. You know, like I said, you're thrown into it and you, mm -hmm. you're slowly revealing kind of things that have already taken place, but, you know. You get to see how um, things play out. 
uh, yeah, it feels like it's part of a cycle. Like there's some things revealed to the reader throughout that have big impacts, but it's nothing that the characters are just figuring out. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's no big reveal actually. It's just right. to the reader. And as they, you know, as they talk to each other and interact throughout the day. So like the title would sort of suggest it sort of, uh, you know, starts out in the morning and things tend to be, I guess, more calm in the morning. Like naturally, I don't know. Um, as far as <laughs> either early in the morning or late at night, same, yeah, same thing. It's a bell curve sort of thing, maybe. Uh, as far as characters, you've got James Tyrone. He's a former actor. He's pretty well off. He made a lot of money in acting, and you know he's well off on the surface, but he's very concerned about money. It's kind of neurotic. Mm-hmm. He is tie he ties up a lot of his money in, in real estate and it doesn't seem like it's, you know, promising real estate. He's just kind of like getting maybe duped into sort of stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Then there's, well, he's also a drinker. He's kind of prone to outbursts. So there's a dysfunctional character, number one. And you've got Mary Tyrone, his wife, uh, who's, you know, deeply unhappy about many of the circumstances of her life with James you know, she's always talking about how their house doesn't feel like a home and he didn't, you know, James didn't set it up as a home. <laughs> um, you know, she misses her earlier life before things became kind of complicated. Don't we all? Yeah. And so, and uh, she drinks as well. Oh, that's a good uh, combo. Yeah. And so rounding it out, you've got their two sons who live with them in their uh, Connecticut home, I believe. Ooh, Connecticut? Yeah, I don't know what town, but uh, okay. I think it's one of the South Shore, Connecticut towns. Uh, I was going to say, so, do you get a sense of, even if they don't name it, there's <laughs> definitely, like, you know you know what I mean? There's, like, West yeah. Hartford, and then there's East, you know, Northeast, obviously the best part, then the coast. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those coastal uppity towns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you got the two sons, both in their, in their mid-30s, I believe. Mm-hmm. You got James Jr., he's the older brother. He carries kind of the classic archetype of the bright young kid who lost his potential along the way, turned to drinking and other vices, and he's sarcastic and he, I don't know, kind of sucks. and Lots of drinking. <laughs> yes. And then you've got the youngest son, Edmund, who is, he's one of our own. He's a big time reader. There's a mm-hmm. cool part in the book, and I wish I bookmarked it here, where it's just like describing his bookshelves and it's just like name dropping like crazy i wonder if people i wonder if people who stage this play ever try to you know put forth 110 percent effort of making sure that everything that he name drops is on the bookshelf like you know when you're seeing a play that like wouldn't really matter (laughs) but a a dedicated production designer might be like no it has to be every day I want that job, just like filling bookshelves with act with actual good books in every mm. in every kind of movie, <laughs> even if they're <laughs> not really seen. But actually, um, I was thinking of a part maybe in the middle of the book, but I f- forgot that on the very first page, um, setting the scene, there's a little part here. Against the wall between the doorways is a small bookcase with a picture of Shakespeare above it, containing novels by Balzac, Zola, Stendhal. Philosophical and sociological works by Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Marx, Engels, Kropotkin, Max Stirner, plays by Ibsen, Shaw, Strindberg, 
poetry by Swinburne, Rossetti, Wilde, Ernest Dowson, Kipling, etc. There's your reading list right there. Yeah. Oh, Got a few years. A... You can do another year of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a law, though. It's a law. Hell right. yeah. So, oh, where was I? So, yeah, Edmund, he's the reader. He's the uh, big-time reader, but he's very sick. Hmm. He's more, he's, um, he's very sick. He's not really recovering. And part of that is because, um, you know, the father is not shelling out for the best doctor. You know, he's looking for a bargain. I guess that's one thing that they argue about. But um, he's also, Edmund is also making the issue work by, like, best that you can guess what he does. <laughs> he also drinks. Um, wow. So you have this family all together, all living under the same roof. And they're just confronting or avoiding and making worse the same issues day in and day out. And each day is just, you can tell that each day is just emotionally exhausting. Mm-hmm. And the real sad part here is that this is a semi-autobiographical play, which was published, ended up being published three years after O'Neill's death. He wrote mm-hmm. it, he dedicated it to his uh, his wife at the time. But yeah. Um, so it was very sad, very impactful. But So like I said, it starts in the morning and throughout four acts, it uh, approaches nighttime. And you know, along this timeline, more and more is revealed about the Tyrone family's past. Mm-hmm. You know, like like any complicated family relationship, there's a lot of guilt, uh, resentment, love, blame, support, you know, addiction in one way or another, and just, you know, difficult stuff. And uh, notice that I listed more negative things than positive, <laughs> uh, because it's a pretty depressing play. But, you know, it won the 1957 Pulitzer Prize for Drama, so. Wow. And that's also uh, posthumous, because he died? Yes, Interesting. I don't know the circumstances of his death. I didn't research that. Wow, but. that's one shitty book report. <laughs> <laughs> points off, points off for that. Damn, I shouldn't have said anything. Uh, do you like reading books in play format, stage directions and that? Yeah, I do. I do like reading um, plays. I guess I have a question for you, which would be now that you've read this play would you jump at the chance to see it staged i think so yeah like if like if you now because this is obviously a play that we've heard about probably because it gets it probably is still on stages sometimes either you know off broadway or whatever or off off broadway so if you just saw like a pamphlet and it was like yeah long day's journey in tonight would you be like yeah i want to see it yeah i think so and who would you interested well, I, I say that same thing about I almost universally want to read a play before I see it staged in front of me. I don't know if that's like stupid and counterintuitive because maybe a play can be just like a movie where you just need to be presented with it to enjoy it. Um, but that's certainly the case for Shakespeare for me, too. I don't really want to dive into Shakespeare unless I've recently read the text so that I can sort of interpret the staging. Yeah rather than trying to figure things out. Um, but I guess my second question would be, if you if you did see a pamphlet of Long Day's Journey Into Night advertised somewhere, who would you want to see as the top-billed cast? <laughs> Damn, I don't know. Oh, I, would I, be I, a I name that, that would draw myself. you to the theater? 
We're talking talking famous, yeah. Well, it doesn't have to be famous or like if if like just on on a whim, you know, don't put too much thought into it. Like who would be like you said, like the main like patriarch. Um for no reason, let's let's make no, I don't I don't know. <laughs> uh let me see because o'neill he's on the cover of this book and he kind of looks like a uh mm-hmm. hemingway type guy so would it be o'neill himself who's like the no, I think, head i think it's it's semi-autobiographical but i don't know which character he's supposed to be in this i be, believe he would be one of the sons but mm-hmm. um i don't know probably the heavy <laughs> probably the heavy reader yeah Let's say, uh, uh, let's, let's make the dad, let's, let's bring Jim Carrey doing another like serious dramatic role. Nice. And then we're going to make the, um, his wife, uh, Laura Dern (laughs) for no reason other than she's awesome. I I would see that. Um, that would be a good pair. Right. And Mm -hmm. then the two sons, it'd have to be, give me some like good 30 something because I don't remember too much about their physical descriptions. One of them's got to be sickly. I mean, uh, I think Joaquin Phoenix is past his 30s now. Um, let's make the sick one um, Haley Joel Osment. And then nice. <laughs> who's going to be the last one? <laughs> He's like a, the fuck up older brother, mid-30s. The fuck up older brother. Um, Drunk. Oh, uh, what's his name? Who was in Nightcrawler? And, Gyllenhaal? Uh, yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, that would be good. That, okay, yeah. we got the four. Nice. Like so that. Jim Carrey is Jake Gyllenhaal's dad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, get some gray, some gray. Yeah. Gray oh, anything, anything bit. can be done nowadays with that all star cast. Are you kidding? Yeah. That'd be good. Right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I liked reading this in the play format. Nice. And you know, the stage directions were interesting. They support the dialogue pretty well. And the descriptions add to the story, like how there's, there are things that are unfolding emotionally inside the house, but at the same time, there's like a kind of a fog forming outside Mm -hmm. where, you know, which is described as making things less visible. And, you know, there's a strong tie to the, one of those AP English things, like the family members are doing the same thing as the fog because they're continuing Mm. to drink and blur reality and all that. Um, yeah, very, very flawed characters. Um, and the, the, I was talking about this being read in schools. And uh, so if I open up the first inside the cover of the copy I have, it says uh, M.C. Bellone, like someone's initials, mm-hmm. AP English, March 1982. Nice. There are notes all over the place. So See, we would have we would have just this podcast would have happened decades ago if we had yeah. taken ap english instead of <laughs> watching lord of the rings <laughs> in its entirety during english yeah. class exactly um, i love how we're shitting on susla like our favorite teacher of all time but yeah. we're like their class is horrible <laughs> <laughs> nah, we were we were gonna read anyways though it's yeah. all right the readers um, read that's for yeah. sure so uh since this is a play i thought we'd perform a small section of it together Ooh, uh, okay. So I, before I the podcast had started, <laughs> I've sent you get pictures. My, act, my acting chops. Yes, I've sent you All pictures. Right. I got four pages here from the book. I'd like All to right. ask you, who would you rather play, 
um, James Tyrone or James Tyrone Jr.? I will play the one the one that says Tyrone. Okay, that's the father. Okay. So I, I marked it I marked it for you. You see there's mm-hmm. one, two, three, four pages. Yep. So you can start from the uh, first one if you want to take it away. Okay, so really I'm Tyrone. It up. I'm Tyrone, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And we're not gonna read we're not gonna read the directions or the okay. stage directions. Okay, no problem. Alright, ready. So this is a scene where um, they are arguing about the younger brother Edmund's illness. Okay. Take it away. He couldn't say anything for sure yet. He's to phone me today before Edmund goes to him. He thinks it's consumption, doesn't he, Papa? He said it might be. Poor kid. God damn it. It might never have happened if you'd send him to a real doctor when he first got sick. What's the matter with Hardy? He's always been our doctor up here. Everything's the matter with him. Even in this hick burg, he's rated third class. He's a cheap old quack. That's right, run him down. Run down everybody. Everyone's a fake to you. Hardy only charges a dollar. That's what make you th- makes you think he's a fine doctor? That's enough. You're not drunk now, there's no excuse. If you mean I can't afford one of the society doctors who prey on the rich summer people... Can't afford? You're one of the biggest property owners around here. That doesn't mean I'm rich. It's all mortgaged. Because you always buy more instead of paying off mortgages. If Edmund was a lousy acre of land you wanted, the sky would be the limit. That's a lie. And your sneers against Dr. Hardy are lies. He doesn't put on thrills or have an office in a fashionable location or drive around in an expensive automobile. That's why you pay for all those $5 to look at your tongue, fellows, not their skill. Oh, all right. I'm a fool to argue. You can't change the leopard spots. No, you can't. You've taught me that lesson only too well. I've lost all hope you will ever change yours. You dare tell me what I can afford? You never known the value of a dollar and never will. You never saved a dollar in your life. At the end of each season, you're penniless. You've thrown your salary away every week on whores and whiskey. My salary? Christ! It's more than you're worth. And you couldn't get that if it wasn't for me. If you weren't my son, there isn't a manager in the business who would give you a part. Your reputation stinks. As it is... I have to humble my pride and beg for you, saying you've turned over a new leaf, although I know it's a lie. I never wanted to be an actor. You forced me on the stage. That is a lie. You made no effort to find anything else to do. You left it to me to get you a job, and I have no influence except in the theater. I forced you. You never wanted to do anything except loaf in bar rooms. You've been content to sit back like a lazy lunk and sponge on me for the rest of your life. After all the money I'd wasted on your education, all you did was get fired in disgrace from every college you ever went to. Oh, for God's sake, don't drag up that ancient history. It's not ancient history that you have to come home every summer to live on me. I earn my board and lodging working on the grounds. It saves you hiring a man. Ugh, you have to be driven to do even that much. I wouldn't give a damn if you ever displayed the slightest sign of gratitude. The only thanks is to have you sneer at me for a dirty miser, sneer at my profession, sneer at every damn thing in the world except yourself. That's not true, Papa. You can't hear me talking to myself, that's all. Ingratitude, the violet, the vilest weed that grows. I could see that line coming. God, how many thousand times? All right, all right, Papa, I'm a bum. Anything you like, so long as it stops the argument. If you get ambition in your head instead of folly, you're young yet. You could still mark your mark. You have the talent to become a fine actor. You have it still. You're my son. 
Let's let's forget me. I'm not interested in this subject. Neither are you. And see. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was uh. Wait, yeah, wait, I mean wait, to wait, be. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> to be honest, a lot of the stuff that came up in that scene was stuff that I was thinking of when you were actually describing the book. Like yeah. when you like when you were saying like the young kid is sick but like they can't get a good doctor. I was like, didn't you say that the dad is like rich? Like is he just like an asshole? <laughs> yeah, see exactly. That gives you a good idea. And that's like from that was only uh that was page 30 to page 33. Oh. So, you know, pretty pretty early on. Still the uh still the morning. But yeah, isn't that does not that give you kind of a good? Uh, doesn't that sound like or seem like a good play? Yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah. It's you know, it's a lot of confrontation like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of yelling, a lot of exclamation points. <laughs> yes, exclamation points here and there. Yeah, that was kind of fun. We should we should uh, record the whole book. Yes, absolutely. Shitty yes. book reports rendition <laughs> of a long day's journey into night. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. And we should um, do it as a as a first take like that every time, so that we yeah. stumble over every dramatic moment. <laughs> hey, we, we did we did all right. There was a couple couple spots, yeah. but couple spots. did pretty good, I think. I'm gonna listen to that again. Uh, so to round it off here, uh, I liked this. It was good, and yeah, I think I would go see it. Um, I would prefer to see like a uh, like a community play, mm-hmm. like an amateur production. I think an amateur Jim production Car- that stars Jim Carrey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so to round it off here, I got a one-star review from Kirsten. Uh, Ew, no, never again. I had to read this for school, and it is literally a dysfunctional family being dysfunctional. I already have my own dysfunctional family to deal with, so goodbye. <laughs> I never really understood people who have... That's like a criticism that you see like all the time, where it's like people... It's like, no, this is too much like my life, and it's like, that's what... I feel like that's something that's really powerful when you read something and that you don't feel, you know, like alone. Yeah. I never understood people's criticisms. (laughs) I know. Oh, well. Oh, well. There you have it. There you have it. Eugene O'Neill. Eugene O'Neill. Now I know a little bit more about Eugene O'Neill. It's interesting because, like, I think that there are a few on stage success stories that are posthumous like the other famous one that i know about is that uh is the endlessly famous broadway play rent yeah. it's like it like premiered like on the eve of the guy's death or whatever and i wonder if there's something about the mechanics of on stage theater that like a posthumous success would like make it easier you know like you're paying less rights to the could be director yeah, or whatever i mean i i guess you know, that doesn't really make much sense, but there's, there might be something there, like a reason why things become famous when, after the person's gone. But anyway, that was cool. Um, yeah. So my book today is, uh, it's my description of it is probably going to be relatively simple, but I think I can gab about anything for 20 minutes, but, um, the this is a book that I had to reach back into my archives because I've been reading pretty slowly recently. Um, but this is a book that I read a while ago. I don't even have the hard copy in my possession, but it's but that's weird because this book has definitely like stayed with me since I read it. So the idea that I called it I called it through one of my moves is is kind of weird. Nice. 
But um, how long ago did you read it? I read it a long time ago, like before being in college. Like okay. this, it was either like a summer in college early on, or even before. Sort of, so that means sort of like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, maybe something like that. Um, which at this point is twelve years ago, which is horrifying. <laughs> um, so my book today is a book called Winter's Tale by Mark Halperin. Have you ever heard of this? No book. Have you? Ever I feel heard like Winter's Winter's Tale. Winter's Tale is a, a Shakespearean play. Yeah. So, or like it has something to do with Shakespeare. So there is a Winter's Tale or the Winter's Tale that is Shakespearean. Um, but Winter's Tale is completely different. Uh, it's a very unique book. I almost feel like this, you would, you would enjoy this book because it kind of just like comes out of nowhere. Um, so Mark Kelpern is this guy who... His career is very varied. Um, he has uh, three books of short story collections and seven novels. Um, the only thing I've ever read is Winter's Tale. That's, But I would go on to read other things, possibly after this review. Spoiler alert. Um, but yeah, Winter's Tale is a very unique book. Um, I would be interested to read it because, as I mentioned before, I think I read this book either slightly before I lived in New York City or as I was first living in New York. I think it was like slightly before because it's a book that is about Manhattan. Again, this is one of those books that it sneaks past my filter of magical realism without me even realizing it. I think I voiced my hate for magical realism too too um liberally and then i go and think back and i'm like well i love mirakami well i love uh you know all this other magical realism like uh <laughs> master and margarita but this is again in that same vein uh and the story of winter's tale is pretty cool it's basically the main character his name is peter lake and he go he like basically he goes through ellis island and that is a theme in helprin's work he wrote another uh collection of short stories called ellis island and other short stories he's age 72 now so he's still alive born in okay yeah i was gonna ask what sort of era yeah and this book was published in 1983 um but the era that it's talking about is an industrial edwardian edwardian era near the turn of the 20th century um so what happens with Peter is that he goes through Ellis Island and he's one of those stories where he, as a child, made it through the immigration process at Ellis Island, but his parents did not. So basically he gets like kind of just injected into American society at the poorest like levels, which apparently was a true thing. Like there was apparently like thousands of children in Manhattan where it was like, I got here, but my parents didn't. So now I'm a rascal, <laughs> you know? Uh, so very much sort of like gangs of New York kind of feeling era where okay. it's like not real, but real and like whatever. And uh, he starts out the novel by becoming part of like basically a gang slash mechanic school forced into burglary burglary with this uh, gang called the short tails. And he has a mortal enemy, you know, this guy named Pearly Soames and he's constantly on the run from this gang or whatever. And it's kind of one of those stories where it's like, I'm a, you know, a scrappy kid. It almost kind of reminds, do you remember the book that I told you about the alienist about like the murderer who was in early New York city? Yes. So, 
kind of same. Like sometimes, like similar vibes here. Winter's Tale is definitely again like one of those page turners. But the twist here with Winter's Tale that's really interesting is that so Helprin was born in Manhattan and has like an intimate relationship with the city. So I think that he knows where to bend the truth to make it like sort of like strangely interesting. Like there's all these weird little details about um, Manhattan that are semi-real like uh at one point in the novel peter the main character he starts to live in the ceiling above grand central station (laughs) and uh you've lived in this you've been into grand central right not lived but yes you've never never (laughs) lived there but you have been into grand central and the and the the amazing roof of grand central is painted you know with like these star like like a star sky um and, you know, his descriptions of it are so fantastical that it almost like if you had never been to New York City, you might think that that's one of the fictional things, but it's one of the factual things. But then there are other things happening in the novel, like uh, Manhattan famously has like a bunch of bridges that go across, you know, both rivers. So there's like the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge and, you know, whatever. But in Winter's Tale, there's like three other fictional ones, like ones that you can walk on and like that are near to the water and stuff like that. So it's got all these weird extra details that if you weren't, if you had never lived in New York or knew anything about it, you would be confused about what was real and what isn't. Um, but then the reality completely breaks because one of the characters in the book is called Athenzor, and he's a white horse and acts as a guardian angel for Peter Lake and saves him from like random situations. So he just like basically is like an ex machina who like comes out of the sky and he's like, yeah, I have this like guardian angel who's a horse. And then eventually as Peter Lake kind of grows from being this scrappy kid on the streets of New York city, he falls in love with um, a young woman who's dying of consumption, which you always hear that. Don't you consumption? And that's I kind what of, Edmund, that's what Edmund was dying of in uh long day's journey into night. There you go. The consumption podcast. Here we are. (laughs) Shitty book reports. Consumption edition. (laughs) And I was like, what the hell is consumption? But it basically means like an advanced form of of tuberculosis. Like when most people are calling it consumption, it's like TB, but like bad, like you're dying. So he falls in love with this girl who named Beverly, who is the daughter of like a publishing magnate, um, Isaac Penn. And then he kind of, Peter this scrappy kid from the streets of New York, from a fantastical New York city, he gets absorbed into basically this rich family that have like a lakeside mansion in upstate New York. And it's his, basically his life like takes a turn for the better as he like, you know, starts getting associated with all these characters. But the thing about winter's tale that I actually found a reference to Pynchon in the New York Times. That's not how I got connected to this book. Uh, I actually borrowed it from a friend, but the um, the uh, a review of Winter's Tale that came out in the New York Times in 1983 by Benjamin DeMott actually did reference, as I was researching this book again for the podcast, I was like, this book is suspicious, suspiciously like Thomas Pynchon. Um, in the fact that it has like all these crazy characters and it's basically just like, there's no really like end game here. It's just like going forward. There are some amazing sequences. Helprin is a really good writer with just making things really lush and really fantastical where like there's this like amazing guy who's like a side character in the book who I really remember it stuck with me. He's like this architect in the sense of, did you ever read any Ayn Rand? Yeah, yeah, just that So much like, 
Yeah, so like Atlas Shrugged or Fountainhead, they have these like characters where it's like, I'm an architect who's amazing and I'm trying to change the world. There's like sort of like a character like that here in Winter's Tale, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to build the perfect bridge into Manhattan so that God will recognize his genius and like accept him into heaven. <laughs> like it's all this totally. like it definitely has that uh what's that thing that uh the criticism emotional uh the thing that we always forget. It's like a term that was used to criticize white teeth. Uh hysterical realism. Really? There's like yeah. some hysterical realism, but it's definitely like pushed into the fantastical. Um I'll read one quote from that New York Times review from when it first came out in 83 um that I think captures, you know, that the this book reviewer captures it better than I could. He says, the heart of this book resides unquestionably in its moral energy and the thousand original gestures, ruminations, and writing feats that summon its audience beyond the narrow limits of conventional vision, commanding us to see our time and place afresh. It's not astonishing that a work so rooted in fantasy filled with narrative hijinks and comic flights stands forth centrally as a moral discourse. It is indeed surprising, and although I would insist that it's the vividness of the ideal in this book that's the source of its moral weight, and although it's clearly the fantasies that carry the ideal, I do not pretend to know why or how the marvelous concord of discourse in Mr. Halpern's Winter's Tale is achieved. And I would agree with that. It's sort of like a book where you're reading along and being like, why is this book so good? Like, yeah, I wasn't like, on the edge of my seat wondering what's going to happen to Peter or the various characters, but it's basically just lots of little great moments. Like he's like kind of just an interesting writer. Um, and it definitely like takes you on a ride. I mean, like it's stuck in my mind this whole entire time of like, yeah, there's like this book called winter's tale that has this really fantastical version of Manhattan. That's like half real, half not real. Um, some really cool details and just like, now that like I'm like I didn't really sense this when I was reading the book, but now going over it again, it almost feels like it could possibly have like a sort of semi-religious like bent to it, where it's like a lot of the characters talk about like achieving, you know, God and stuff like that. Um, there's apparently a 2014 adapt movie adaptation which I've never heard of. It must have been a massive flop, but it has Colin Farrell as the main character and Russell Crowe as one of the what? other characters and Jennifer <laughs> Connelly and Will Smith. Um, so yeah, there's a there yeah, look it up. Winter's Tale 2014. Um, it, yeah, it does sound a little bit like a more mature sort of combination like c.s lewis or like yeah uh what no what's the other one golden compass that's yeah it is kind of yeah. like that it is a little bit like that and and honestly his like body of work is also a little bit like that where it's like i wouldn't if i was picking up a helper book i wouldn't know if it was like going to be like a fantasy book or like a straightforward novel like i don't really know he's he's kind of got like a very kind of eclectic and like varied like list of books also his career is that he um he also is like a writer just like you can find him like in the new yorker or in like like you know all the various like review of books things he also does like political commentary he is a member of the council on foreign relations <laughs> what? um 
which apparently you know, you hear that and you think like, oh, that's part of the government, but it's a nonprofit think tank on U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. Yeah. So he does okay. like some political writing and stuff. He actually, it's interesting, like in researching him for the podcast, I went on his website as well. And he has like various writings that are clippings from the Claremont Review of Books or the Wall Street Journal, you know, from 2018. And he kind of has like, He's one of those people where I'm I start to read the article that he wrote and it seems like he might be 10% leaning from the center to the right which is scary in these times mm. but also it's someone who he's like a great writer so like I read this thing that he wrote about you know remember how like in Charlottesville Virginia there was like massive protests with like Nazis and Antifa about a Robert E. Lee statue and stuff like that. So he like wrote about that, but he has sort of like a more realistic kind of like handle on it where he's just kind of, he kind of seems like he's like your almost not like level headed, almost right wing uncle. Who's very sort of like, no, I'm not crazy. I'm just like, and not super conservative, just like, you know, uh, living in the real world type of guy. Yeah, I'm just um, being pragmatic. Yeah, so he does write stuff like that, but it's cool, you know, like all the time you're dealing with authors who have no commentary about the world we're living in. So this is the opposite of that. Like you can go like find him, <laughs> you know, writing <laughs> stuff about politics or any like stuff like that from magazines. But also, you know, A Winter's Tale was a book that just like stuck with me. It's definitely one of those books where it's like, it didn't reach my top five. It wasn't like, wow, my mind is exploded into pieces like Dostoevsky or something like that. But it's definitely one of those books where it's like once a year, maybe once every two years, you're like, damn, remember that book Winter's Tale? (laughs) You're like, sort of think about it for a second. And you're like, I remember... I can't, I obviously I told you guys I don't have the book, but like, I remember there was this one sequence where they, they skate, there's like a river, they live on this lake, this like really posh lake upstate. And there's a part where they skate from the river, like all the way into Manhattan, you know, something that's not actually possible with the, (laughs) you know, like the, the river can't freeze that much or not this day and age anyway. And it was just this amazing sequence where they were like skating on the like river, like on the Hudson. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, it's just really crazy. And, you know, it almost would be like, you could like put it into that style of what's that comic that you love, Mark, where it's like the kid that's on the bed. Neo's adventures. Little Nemo. Little Nemo. You could like, you could do like the whole book would be like illustrated like that. It would be very fantastical and amazing. Nice. Um, so yeah, Winter's Tale by Mark Halperin came out in 1983. Not a mind-blowing book, but definitely a page-turner and one that sticks with you uh, through the years. And I'll read my one-star review, which was from Michael J.J. Tiffany on Goodreads. He says, I have no doubt that there are works, there are worse works of fiction in existence, but this is the worst one I've read. It's written for people who like the sound of language in their head, who want to feel long streams of words washing over them. Judging by the popularity and success of its author and others like like him, there are a lot of these people, but it's a terribly low standard that in this case gives us page after page of blah, blah, blah. And he goes on to quote the actual book. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, to each his own, Michael J.J. Tiffany gives that a one-star review but I would say I am someone who likes 
long streams of words washing over me and uh, the sound of language in my head. And I think that Halpern does a good job of just presenting a funky story in a way that was easy to read and, uh, you know, stuck with me for a while. So that's that. I'm looking at covers mm-hmm. of this book. Yeah, I had the classic one that's a horse in stars above Manhattan. Yeah, I'm seeing that one. I'm also seeing one that maybe has a horse and a rainbow in front of the Twin Towers. Is that real? I might be duped right now. Um, No, I don't think that's... There's one where it's like the light streaming into Grand Central. Oh, yeah, I see that one. And actually, it's a sad story that, you know, Grand Central used to look like that. The light would stream in, but then they built a bunch of buildings on the opposite side of the street. And now the sun doesn't shine in like that. Oh. Isn't that depressing? Yeah. It was designed to be made like that. The, it's like, a natural this, light. Yeah, there's this beautiful streams of light. And you see it often in in movies or pictures and stuff. But it just added. Anymore. Yeah, and then here's the... Uh, there's obviously a a poster with Colin Farrell on it. That's bizarre. Oh, yeah. I see that one, too. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Winter's Tale. Nice. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, uh, that's this has been another episode of Shitty Burke Reports. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, you can find us on any given Sunday, mostly, most Sundays, on uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram, Twitter, Stitcher, basically anywhere where you get podcasts. And uh, you can email us anything that you'd like to discuss. Maybe you want to send us a short story that we could talk about or, uh, you know, your comments, suggestions, corrections, whatever you're feeling at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. See you later. See ya.